Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology. Have you ever been asked how would you rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? Pain is a very personal and subjective thing. And today, you're going to hear a few things about what has science uncovered about pain and pain management by today. My name is Tiasha Zeitz and I spoke with Sarah Berger, researcher at IBM. Sarah has over a decade of experience in the pain field. Her background includes neuroscience, psychology, bioethics and women, gender and sexuality studies. We talked about how science defines pain, how can pain be quantified given the variety of factors that impact it, and how does research so far translate into clinical practice. Enjoy the show, and to read more about other topics as well, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. This podcast is now also published in the form of video interviews. So check out the Faces of Digital Health YouTube channel. Now, to Sarah. Sarah, for starters... How does science define pain, since pain is a very personal and subjective matter? So I wonder how diverse the definitions are. The International Association for the Study of Pain, they define it both in terms of a sensation and a a perception, as well as an emotion. And they also importantly define pain in terms of both actual tissue damage or also potential tissue damage. And, And I think if I'm not mistaken, they've even revised this definition or added to it very recently, like last year. And they include things um, about culture, communication, psychology, and they also make a, a very clear distinction between what we call nociception, which is the actual cellular activity of uh, receptors in response to noxious stimulation, and then pain, which is this much bigger, broader perception, sensation, and emotion. So I think because this is an international definition, I think the actual definition is pretty much agreed upon. But there's obviously various ways of studying or lens of looking at pain that can differ substantially. Culture matters, whether or not you're looking at the brain or the spinal cord in response to pain. These types of things color the way that people study it but not necessarily how you define it. So I think there's an agreed upon definition, but you can study it from various aspects, if that makes sense. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of aspects of it, Mm -hmm. which makes sense. Before we dive into the research and the reasons why placebo works in some people as good as a drug, I want to dig into the understanding of pain a little bit better. When I was doing the research, my uh, first thought was, yeah, obviously there has to be a way to quantify pain, but then you um, dive into literature ability and then you realize that, yeah, maybe some people that are constantly in pain, they become a little bit 
tolerant to the pain. If you would ask them how would they rate their pain, it would be different from somebody else. It's different if you're scared or not. So how difficult it is to actually be uh, objective and to actually quantify pain, quantifying pain when you're researching it. Yeah. yeah. You're bringing up wonderful points. First of all, the one thing that you touched on is that there's a difference between acute and chronic pain, right? So acute pain is this idea where we slam our door or slam a door and we hurt our finger or stub our toe or something. And this is fast pain. This can last seconds to minutes, maybe an hour or so. And it's really about tissue damage. And the ways that we respond to that are actually physiologically and psychologically quite different than something called chronic or like long-term pain. And And as you said, over time, people learn and not just learn in terms of being like cognitively aware of this learning, but their entire bodies learn all these different chemical, physiological and psychological signals, which makes the chronic pain experience literally different. It looks different in the brain. It looks different in the spinal cord. It even looks different out in the periphery. So there's that difference. And I think less and less now, but historically speaking, people used to, scientists used to treat pain, chronic pain, as if it were acute. But now we're seeing, because we know that chronic pain in particular is so multifaceted, we are seeing more of this transition into a like a more holistic approach because of, of those things that, that you mentioned. Another thing you brought up was, I think you brought up fear and you brought up emotions. And that's also something that we're really just starting to understand. I think any time that you think of pain, or particularly in a clinical setting, when someone asks you from zero to 10, what's your pain level right now, you are automatically bringing up memories of previous pains, comparisons, are you scared in that moment? Are you calm in that moment? All of these things color your perception of pain in that moment. And that is something that also, as you said, it makes it difficult to study, right? Additionally, everybody's coming at their pain experience with a variety of of other life experiences, right? There's this intersectionality of life experiences that happen. And so it makes it also really tough to say, oh, this chronic low back pain patient is the same as this other chronic low back pain patient when maybe one is a female, one is a male, or one is white, or one is black or African. And so you think to that point, you think that it might be impossible, (laughs) right? To find some sort of universal pain metric or something. And maybe it is, but I think that technology now can start using all of these differences and actually start clustering them and making sense and finding patterns in individual differences that can help us with this. And then I also think too, even though we're all dissimilar, we're also very similar, right? So the ways that our brains process pain, for example, Yes, there are slight differences, but there's a ton of overlap. And so you can start picking up on physiological signals that are the same or very similar across different people. And that those two things together can start making our measurements of pain more, I I caution to say more objective, but definitely more, you know, patient focused, less biased, these types of things. I think one interesting example that shows how the mind can affect levels of pain or even the absence of it are uh, extreme situations such as people training and walking on embers and experiences like that. So does that in any way help science try to understand pain? I'm sure there was research done around these experiences. Oh, there's so much. There's so much. There's people coming back from war and amputees 
ease, right? I'm a dancer and there's been a little bit of research studied on like ballerinas. And if you think about how much pressure they're putting on their toes, that will activate nociceptors. But over time, they don't view it as painful because they have so many other things going on. So pain is extremely contextual. I think being aware of that as a scientist, that when you study pain, that it doesn't occur in a vacuum, that it is always contextual, I think is super important. We always have to keep that in mind. And to that extent, it's helpful. How far has science come so far in quantifying pain? So what seems to be the most useful tool or approach at the moment? I would say quantifying pain is going to be something we're going to be working on for a while. And each tool has its own in terms of like usability and feasibility. I know Tor Wager's group, he used to be at CU Boulder but I think he's at Dartmouth now. He's done a really excellent job of using fMRI to quantify acute pain, different kinds of pain, like thermal pressure, these types of things, even I think emotional pain. And so we have these pattern recognitions in, in fMRI that's able to, to do a really good job and to be validated in different kinds of people. In terms of chronic pain, I think that's something that... <laughs> is still quite a bit uh, a ways away. But my previous lab that I was in at Northwestern University, Bonnie Upkarian's lab, he's done a lot of work again with fMRI on looking at, you know, how chronic pain is different than acute pain in the brain in real time, as well as having biomarkers of like people that might be more likely to develop chronic pain in the future. So I think, right, in terms of, but the problem with fMRI and those types of things is that they're expensive, they're cumbersome, right? They're not easily translatable to a market. And so that kind of leaves us with a different territory of using wearables or using other sensors in the environment. And I think that people are getting closer to being able to do this, but we still have to do a lot more research. So all this is happening more or less in the research space, because given everything that you just described, research is done with very different instruments. And if you imagine a medical setting where a patient comes to the doctor's office and suffers from pain and says that, obviously the doctor is not going to do all sorts of research and fMRIs and everything just to decide what kind of treatment the patient is going to get. So how does the research uh, translate into clinical practice? Yeah. yeah, so I think one of the things we're working on at IBM is to this point, so developing this sort of like digital health, like ecosystem or platform that kind of addresses some of these questions. So the first is, right, and we've touched on this a little bit, but pain, whether that's acute or chronic, is multidimensional. And what I mean by that is not just the fact that it is psychological and physiological and, and cultural, but also that it's not just about pain intensity or pain location. It's also just as much about mood and sleep and activity and these types of like quality of life measures. And one of the things that we want to do is we want to take tools that already exist, put them in one place and make them usable for a physician, like in a clinical setting, work with physicians, provide them with access to these types of tools or algorithms that then they can use and translate into practice. Now, again, this is still in development, but I think that's one way of approaching something like this to make sure that you go from research and development into actual, you know, practice. One interesting study that you did was uh, the use of placebo in maybe substituting 
uh, medications in some cases with placebo because it works in some people. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? What was the trigger for such a research? Did the opioid crisis in the US had any role in it? So just to be clear, we weren't actually like trying to replace placebos with something else. So in my previous work, again, this is with Northwestern University, we were just interested in the placebo response from a mechanistic standpoint, because it's fascinating. And so we actually got an NIH grant to study placebo specifically. So we had a, a clinical trial, registered clinical trial that gave the majority of patients placebos as a primary treatment. And we had a very small number, less than 10 patients received an active standard of care. And the only reason we did that was so that we could be blinded, that there was always a chance that someone would have received an active treatment. And we were really interested in, in, in discovering, is there any predictive factors, right? Whether that's based in the brain, personality, other types of things that can reliably infer if someone's going to respond to this or not and, and to what extent they will. So that was a main goal or aim of that previous research. And what we ended up finding, right, and there's a couple papers that I've published on this. One, we found that there are certain brain networks and associated personality characteristics that are predictive of response before they even get a pill. And then we also found that other characteristics of the brain change in response to getting a pill. And then finally, we found that there are certain ways that people talked about their pain experiences overall that were also predictive. I shouldn't say predictive. They were, uh, they inferred whether or not someone uh, would be a uh, placebo responder or not. The idea wasn't really fostered by any ongoing opioid crisis or anything like that. It was more of a research question, but obviously the implications for that are really substantial. So you mentioned that people talked differently about pain and that was really helpful. Can you elaborate that a little bit further? So how sure. did the descriptions differ yeah, originally we wanted to do, so the whole idea behind even using language as a marker was we really see language as a window into the mind, right? So it's both a consequence of thought, but it's also a cause of thought. And so the idea is if pain is in the mind, then how you think about pain should affect how you talk about pain. And maybe we can tease that apart in someone's language and, and the associated placebo response. To that, we were originally going to do an interview at the beginning of the study, but there's a lot of literature to suggest that even just asking people about their pain experiences can elicit placebo or nocebo responses because it, it hinges the social dynamic and even expectations. So for the first study, which is the one that's published, we actually waited until the exit interview. And then that's why I corrected myself earlier, because then it's not predictive anymore. But we essentially asked patients a variety of things that weren't really even about their time in the study. We asked them, tell me about yourself. What do you like to do? Tell me about a dream you had recently. And then we also asked them about how has your pain experience been so far? Like, when did it start? What are some previous experiences you've had in the medical system? This type of thing. And what we discovered was that there was very clear distinctions between the people that responded to placebo and the people that didn't. And we were blind at the time. We didn't know who did or didn't until later. And this really had to do with issues of like identity and self and also like leisure activities. And, and I think that it was surprising as well that we found relationships between people's perceptions of like stigma and, and language and placebo. So it was a first study that kind of was able to actually tease apart responders and non-responders in terms of language. What's 
interesting is that we have a study coming up, it's not published yet, but hopefully this year, that actually takes that that language model and it applies it to data that's unseen at the beginning of a study to actually predict future responders or non-responders. So we think that the signals we're seeing in the language are actually also predictive, which is really cool. And to, to which extent did you also look at or didn't look at the voice as such? So because you really dived mm-hmm. into the context, but a lot of yes. research is also done on how the person speaks. I- it's a good question. Yeah. So for that particular study, um, we didn't look at it, but I think I can comment on that in general. Obviously, we have the acoustic properties of voice, which can give give us a hint at emotionality in particular, as you just mentioned, but also can give us a hint at like other cognitive differences or, or happening, right? Like speech rate and, and such. It's important. I think the reason why we didn't study it was just because we didn't have the equipment at the time to, to do that in a reasonable way. But I think there's that interaction as well between the acoustics of what you say and the content of what you say. And if you mix all of those together, that's where you probably get the best signal for these types of things. Going back to, you know, what we talked about earlier is it's tough with chronic pain, right? So with acute pain, particularly with acoustics, right? You might imagine that your pitch might get higher if you're in more pain or something like this. Or uh, alternatively, you might actually have less verbal or even less sounds coming because it is such an intense experience, right? In acute pain. With chronic pain over time, because people become so used to it, finding those differences and inflections or even content becomes a lot more, you know, difficult of a challenge. So it's something that we acknowledge, we're still looking at, but it's definitely a factor. Both of those are. I'm probably going to ask you a few times uh, over the conversation, how applicable is this to the clinical practice? Because everything that we mentioned, looking at how somebody is speaking, what's the tone of voice, that's very interesting for the research space. But I wonder to which extent can that help a doctor? If you think about it, people are already doing that. So let's, if we take a step back and we don't say like, a pain physician, but we take a psychologist. Psychologists as part of the psychiatric interview are already looking at these things. It's part of their natural way of interacting with a patient. And I'm assuming, and I'm not a pain physician, but I'm assuming that this is also part of what they are listening to, even if they're not really consciously aware of it. So I think what essentially a tool like that would do is it would be able to make visible the things that they already inherently know. Or it can also help them check biases in certain ways if they're hearing something that the algorithm wouldn't be, for example, or vice versa. So I think I think it has direct clinical implication. And I think it's also one of the few things too, as we said before, it's costly and burdensome to have to always put somebody in MRI. But if you could simply in the future record somebody's voice or your conversation with that person and you would know some sort of likelihood in the future, I think that is very, it's minimally burdensome. It's actually part of a natural process that happens in the clinic anyway. But that's just, you know, my personal opinion. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to placebo, it's used in clinical trials to help determine the efficacy of medications. A new medication has to be definitely better than a a placebo effect. But what does that tell us? The existence of placebo and also nocebo, on the other hand, having a negative effect without actually 
having a reason for that's maybe not the best explanation, but yeah. it's just so the opposite of placebo when you suffer from negative consequences because you think that uh, something is hurting you. How does all that help us in making medical practice better? Because when you were researching pain, you came to interesting conclusions around uh, who is going to respond to placebo or not. So that a little bit indicates that potentially some people could just get a placebo to get better. Obviously, that also brings with it a lot of ethical questions. Is it ethical to give, to basically give somebody a placebo when they're thinking that they're actually getting a drug? Let me first start with just in case people listening don't know what that difference is. So placebo is this catch-all term for expectation, right? So it's I like to frame it as it's like an expectation belief of treatment. And it can be positive, which would be placebo, or it can be negative, which would be nocebo. And traditionally, as you've mentioned, in clinical trials, right, randomized control trials, you have a control group, which often receives a placebo. Sometimes they receive no treatment at all, but usually there's a, a placebo control group. And then there's some sort of active treatment group. And it's randomized, right? The thing that people don't understand, or maybe they don't think about is that Placebo, if it's about expectation, first and foremost, as opposed to getting a sugar pill or not, placebo responses or nocebo responses, expectation responses are in every single medication therapy treatment that any of us use, no matter what. And so there's going to be a number of people that are randomly assigned to an active treatment group who would be placebo responders, statistically speaking. And what something like this, and, and I say that because they're likely to respond no matter what was given to them. And so if you have a group of people like that already in your active treatment group, then you're already in some ways biasing the treatment effects of that group. So what a tool like this, or what many tools that are able to somehow indicate likelihood of placebo response could do is it could identify those people ahead of time and make sure that those groups are equally stratified between, you know, the two arms, for example. And so that then makes clinical trials more likely to be accurate, more likely to be beneficial in the future, these types of things. That's just one, you know, example. I think the other kind of, I don't know if it's a misconception, but I think the there is a misconception that placebo is always deceptive. And I think that comes in part because of the history of placebo, because it has traditionally been associated with deception. But there's a ton of research showing that you can get the same benefits from open-label placebo. So when people actually know that they are taking some sort of sugar pill or sham treatment, and that's, I think, primarily coming from like Ted Kapchuk's work. But I think there's a way that you can use placebo response to actually benefit and make clinical trials and even like clinical practice more efficient and more patient-centric. The ethics involved are important, but I, I think that we can think about this in a way that is actually really you know, beneficial for everybody involved. The more I think about it, the more I feel that it's really difficult to study the effects of placebo, because if you have somebody who's in terrible pain and it's a chronic pain and he has this very strong desire that to, to get better. And then when that person gets a drug, even if it was the same drug as before, I can imagine that being a chronic patient, you can still have a strong desire that this drug is going to help you this time, even if it didn't last time. So mm -hmm. is it possible that 
in the first case, placebo was not there. And in the second case, it is. And, you know, there, there comes the question, can the treatment be even more successful for an individual if you combine the actual efficacy of the drug combined with placebo on top of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think more research really has to be done to disentangle the placebo or expectation effects from, from drugs that we use. Is this additive? Is it multiplicative? How stable is it right in time? And more research needs to be done there because they are all imbued together. To your point about it being difficult to study. So I think one of the reasons why it has been so hard is that traditionally, before I would say the last 10 years, placebo has been primarily studied in otherwise healthy patients who have no history of like chronic illness. And that's problematic because you end up bringing people who have very different expectations of treatment and various and different experiences with prior treatment to that setting. And so a lot of the predictive models or just even theory behind placebo and even personality of placebo was really biased towards healthy people. But then when you have a chronic person, whether that's someone or a person with a chronic condition who has, let's say, chronic pain, or let's say they have depression, they are already coming into a situation with expectations based off of prior experiences, which changes the types of things we might expect to be factors in future response. So I think the way that research is heading now, we're eliminating some of those old tendencies and biases, which is good, but I think there's still more work to do. And I think the other thing too is that, and this is speaking from my experience, is that there tends to be this internal discussion about whether or not placebo response is a trait, so something that is reliable and stable in time, or if it's a state, so something that is totally dependent upon where the person is. I tend to view it as a mix of both, right? So I think that our various experiences, what we've learned about our bodies or pain or whatever it is, right, whatever condition we have mixed with whatever circumstances are happening at that time puts us along some sort of continuum, right? It might make us more or less likely to respond to something, but that doesn't mean that we can't respond to it in the future. So I think there's a flexibility there to your example, where it is possible that person may have actually had an inclination to respond, but because of all the factors surrounding that initial application of treatment, they didn't. But then the second one, there was enough of the right factors that pushed that response to happen, if that makes sense. Yeah, sounds like so many variables that I wonder how do you even set standards to be able to do research and compare results and studies. So perhaps if we go back to the study that you did, so it was about how speech-to-text AI could help doctors prescribe a placebo to ease chronic pain. So you focused on, on speech. I wonder, how, given how difficult it is to set standards, what were your hypotheses there? What did you expect? How was the study designed in the first place? So I think we touched a little bit on this before. So I guess before going into that, your comment about standards is interesting. I think in order to set standards, you have to show and you have to demonstrate 
multiple times the ability that something works and works in a variety of populations. In our case, we had a very specific population. So we were looking at individuals with chronic low back pain. And so they had to have back pain for at least six months. They also had to have some sort of neuropathic component, meaning that they felt it not just in their back, but also probably radiating down one or both legs. And we we're also, even though we included a wide variety of people, so we had people aged 20 up to I think 70 something, and we had men and women, we had actually equal number or representative number of Caucasian, Hispanic, and uh, African Americans in our study. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure that our model not only applies again on a very similar population, but also applies on a different pain population or multiple different pain populations. It might You might need to think about how it applies to different kinds of treatment. So we were using a pill, but placebo responses might change if you use an injection or you use a surgery, this type of thing. And then also how the models change with different populations or even different languages. So there's so much that needs to be done to develop a standard of practice and care. And I think that just because there's a lot that needs to be done doesn't mean that it can't be done. It's just that you have to be really you know, cognizant of all of those things. In terms of the actual design, we were really careful to not put a, an actual expectation onto the participant. So we wanted them to have their own nocebo or null like response. So a lot of times what you'll see in placebo responses is they'll say, this is going to help you. And so you're essentially like setting up that positive expectation bias. And we really didn't want to do that. We wanted to see where patients would naturally go. So we said, you may or may not receive an active treatment. It may or may not help you. It has helped some people in the past. Sometimes it hasn't. And we were trying to be as honest also as possible. So both of those statements were true and they didn't lead you know anyone on. Everything was doubly blinded. So I had no idea as I was interacting with patients what they were assigned to. They didn't have any interaction uh, or knowledge of what they were assigned to throughout the entirety of the study. We even did something that uh, was actually quite onerous on the researcher's part, which was we actually triple blinded the, the, the data analysis. So when everything was done, we actually had a real data set and two fake data sets. So we had to repeat everything three times to see if, the, if our model results were by chance or if they are actually really robust. So we were trying to be very like responsible and ethical in, in how we were doing it the whole time. You mentioned that you were very mindful regarding the population that was involved. And diversity is currently a huge topic also when it comes to clinical trials and how, where, which population are devices tested on. So did you notice any differences based on race and pain? We did not. Nope. Uh, we did not notice any differences in terms of race, education level, income, any of that. But it was a small population and we weren't really, we didn't design the study to look at those things. We just made sure that they weren't factors in our results that we got, or at least I should rephrase that, apparent factors in the results that we got. But to your point, disparities in healthcare and in particular pain is, is a big it's a big deal. At least I can only comment on it from the US. I don't know, honestly, if it is in Slovenia. But I think there's differences in prescribing opioid medications based off of race. There's differences in the amount of prescriptions based off race and gender. And, and these are problems. It has real world consequences. And so I think this is something that has to be tackled, not just from a research aspect, by making... I was lucky enough to be part of an environment that 
having that data set be as inclusive and representative as possible was actually something we thought about. But as researchers, as clinicians, we need to do more of that. And it's a tough thing, right? Because at least in the US, we have a historical disenfranchisement and not even just bias, but like mistreatment of people within a research and clinical context. So there's more than just getting the data. It's also fostering trust in that process too, which I think is important, which we need a lot more work on. <laughs> yeah, again, uh, a lot of factors. It's definitely a vast, a huge uh, and fascinating field, which you have been researching for a very long time. And in that time, in the last 10, 20 years, a lot of progress has happened also in the field of technology that's used to help and curb pain. So given your background in neuroscience and psychology, I really wonder how do you see the digital therapeutics that are now coming out, the focus on mindfulness? Fullness, on, on meditation and all the cognitive, basically, exercises to help pain. And on the other hand, there's VR that shows that if you have naive patients that have not been exposed to VR before, there's quite a good chance that they're going to react like immediately, at least in the first treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm personally really excited about this. Again, if it's done like responsibly, but I think the advent of digital technologies and particularly technologies that combine this cognitive aspect that you're hinting at with patient behaviors, I think is super important, right? I'm seeing a lot more, tons of apps are trying to measure people's daily pain intensity and such. That's not new anymore. But what is new is what you're getting at is like actually giving people back suggestions of how they can themselves control their pain. And I think that's one of these things that I think why I liked placebo so much is because it lets people um, into their own bodies and minds and actually be able to control some parts of the pain, not all of it themselves. And I think so much of suffering in general is because of this perceived lack of control. So being able to download an app and get feedback, either in the form of some sort of digital suggestion, or even a lot of these apps are coming with like health coaches so that there's this really good social aspect in there that I think is useful because you don't necessarily want especially with a clinical condition, you don't really want people to feel like ostracized or, or alone in this process. You want it to be social and dynamic. I think too, and this goes back to some of the work that IBM is doing with many partners like Boston Scientific, is this digital health platform also is allowing now physicians to be able to, and, and, and clinicians and such, to be able to use data that isn't just coming from the clinic, but is coming from people's like real world experiences, right? In their lived environments, um, where they're more likely to show real fluctuations in, in what's going on. And so then you, you essentially can help physicians like triage, right? And be able to say, this person, I, I want to reach out to this person, or I can better understand what this person is going through. So I, I really am a big fan of it. I think too, it's it's building on a lot of the research that was already done. So for VR, I immediately think of V.S. Ramachandran's work on the mirror box, right? Where you have a person who has phantom limb pain and they put their one hand into a box, but then that's mirrored so that they can see what would have been their missing limb in the other and they feel relief. It's like the first form in some ways of a virtual reality. And so I think as we start 
progressing along that line, VR is like a potential new therapy for pain. That's really exciting. Super exciting. To which extent do you see that clinicians are skeptical about the, all these approaches and the research that's done? Because when it comes to AI, one of the real concerns is that it's not introduced properly into the clinical settings. So clinicians are just given new tools and told that they work. And then clinicians wonder, but yeah, but what's the data set? Like, how does this algorithm work? Can I rely on this? I'm responsible for this patient. Why would I, I trust this AI? And when you've got all sorts of vendors and providers that are using different measures and different data set and it's difficult to compare the solutions what's your experience working with clinicians regarding these questions yeah so it's a really good point i think a lot of those issues not all of them but a lot of them can be circumvented if you work with them from the get-go we have this partnership with boston scientific and we're working with people who are not just part of the business side of boston scientific but clinicians that work with spinal cord stimulators We're working with people who actually program the stimulators. And so then as you are designing this and figuring out what should we measure, what are the clinical standards for this? You can, how would it be usable as a physician? What would you need in order to be able to trust this? When you can have those conversations up front, then you don't run into those issues that you mentioned. And it also allows you to design with inclusivity in mind to a certain extent, right? So different you know, physicians might value different uh, metrics over others. And so how do you make sure you account for that in, in, in the products that you're building? So I think it's that and, and, and along the lines, too, of something that IBM really values is like trust and transparency. So getting away from that kind of black box approach and being able to have if your algorithm makes some sort of decision or prediction, like having it available for why it made that so that people can understand it. It's approachable. It's not just, oh, this told me to do that, therefore I did it, right? Because clinical decision-making has to work in in synergy with the tools that we develop. It can't be separate and it can't one can't trump the other either. I want to quote the blog post that you wrote about part of the research that you did. And that was when we talked to the uh, speech to AI uh, tools that would help doctors. In the future, a standardized list of patient-related questions given to patients during a visit could potentially be automatically transcribed to the AI and analyzed in real time to provide a physician the likelihood of that patient's response to a prescribed treatment. It sounds amazing, but how far do you think we still are from that kind of scenario? I'm a researcher. I hate, you know, deadlines. I can't give you a concrete thing of how far we are. I can tell you what we still need to do. And I've touched on this briefly in the conversation, but you know, the very first thing we need to do is Is, does this work again in a similar population, which is something that I can pre-say as yes, it does, but we need to finalize that research and publish it. And then we need to say, okay, how specific or global do we need to be? Do we want this to be something? Because right now, the model is tested on a very specific type of pain and a very specific type of placebo a pill. And so we want to go, okay, does this also work? on other kinds of populations? Does it also work on other kinds of treatment? And then because this is a language model, does this also work in different languages? And I think that is <laughs> super important. I also think too, the language models that we used, we have to make sure that they are the least biased as possible. There's a lot of data coming out now about NLP bias and things like this. And so we need to make sure that like, 
we're not accidentally introducing more of that into our study. I think a lot of validation analysis need to happen before we see something like that be out in the clinic and usable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I would sum up this, I would just say that as with any other AI research or AI tool, it's always very narrow and very difficult to translate into a different setting or to different population because, yeah, we have to be mindful that what, what the focus of of the study was. So, uh, Sarah, thank you for this insight and hopefully the, the future is going to be less painful. That's the only thing <laughs> that I can say. <laughs> or it'll be, I, to that point, it's like pain is useful. It's just when we have too much of it and we can't adapt to it, that's when it becomes problematic. Maybe it's not necessarily about less pain, but about pain that we can actually make sense of. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts or by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash Faces of Digital Health and you will be redirected to the provider appropriate for your device. And if you're interested in exploring more healthcare shows and healthcare trends, do browse through the Health Podcast Network website. Stay tuned.